Grave, Book One, The Republic. Written and narrated by Christopher Vale. Theme song, Lionheart, by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. Chapter 2. La Belle Sauvage Captain John Smith had been captured and his men killed by Indian warriors while exploring a shore of the James River, several miles north of the settlement at Jamestown. While fighting off his attackers, Smith had shot and killed two of the Indian braves with his pistol. Dragged before the Indian king Powhatan, Smith was sentenced to death for the murder of those Indians. Braves tied him to a large rock, and Powhatan stood over him menacingly, holding a giant club ready to smash Smith's skull in. With a yell, Powhatan raised the club above his head, but before it dropped, a young girl dashed across the room and threw herself on top of Smith, her head shielding his from the club. Powhatan stopped his swing and stared down at his young daughter, Pocahontas. She stared back up at him, with tears streaming down her cheeks. The Indian princess pleaded with her father to spare Smith's life. Pocahontas claimed the Englishman for herself, and her father eventually relented. He sighed and lowered the club, nodding to her. He agreed he would spare the white man, and she could keep him as her own, to make her small toys and things. This marked the second time Smith would be the property of a female. This time, however, though Smith technically belonged to the young Indian princess, he was treated like a member of the tribe instead of like a slave, the way the Turks had treated him. Contrary to some tales, including at least one popular cartoon, there was no romantic relationship between John Smith and Pocahontas. The Indian princess was just a child, who Smith believed to be 10, though historian Charles Dudley Warner believed her to be closer to 12 or 13. It is, of course, likely that Pocahontas had a girl's crush on this dashing, exotic stranger from a far-off land. Smith, however, always wrote about her as the child that she was. He liked her well enough, and certainly appreciated that she saved his life and the food she would later bring to the settlement. But there was never anything romantic about their relationship. After a couple of weeks of living with the tribe, Powhatan agreed to let Smith return to Jamestown in exchange for two cannons and a grindstone, for which he would give Smith a large piece of land and adopt him as a son. Indian guides returned Smith to the settlement, 
and once there, Smith attempted to make good on the trade. The cannons and grindstone were too heavy for the guides, however, and they left without them. Of course, Smith knew that the guides would not be able to carry the heavy cannon, and that is why he agreed to let Powhatan have it in the first place. Gabriel Archer, who was a friend of President Ratcliffe, had joined the council while Smith was away, and demanded Smith be tried for the deaths of Emery and Robinson. Smith was found guilty, and Ratcliffe ordered him to be hanged the following day. The real reason Ratcliffe and Archer wanted to be rid of Smith was because they, and some of the others, whom were considered the better sort, planned to sell for England, leaving the rest of the colonists to fend for themselves. They were rightly afraid that Smith would put an end to those plans. However, Providence smiled upon Smith yet again when Captain Newport returned to the settlement that very evening with a ship of provisions and around a hundred new recruits. During the excitement and celebrations, the charges against Smith were forgotten. The new colonists brought renewed energy and purpose back to the colony. They immediately began construction of new quarters, a storehouse, common kitchen, and church. However, not long after they arrived, a fire began and spread quickly through the fort, destroying most of the new buildings and nearly all of the supplies. The colonists were left with little more than the clothes on their backs. The English would once again have to rely on trade with the natives to survive the winter. Since Smith appeared to be the only colonist the Indians would deal with, he became indispensable. Smith took Newport to visit Powhatan, and Newport presented the Indian king with a suit of red cloth, a white greyhound, and a fine hat. They also gave Powhatan a 13-year-old boy named Thomas Savage, whom the chief adopted as his son. In return, Powhatan gave the English one of his servants. These go-betweens, who learned each other's language and culture, would serve both sides well over the following years. The following day, Newport and Powhatan negotiated trade for corn. Unlike Smith, Newport was a poor negotiator and allowed Powhatan to see how many trade goods of copper and hatchets he had, believing he would bewitch him with his bounty. Unfortunately, Powhatan certainly understood supply and demand better than Newport, and instead of impressing the Indian king, Newport unwittingly reduced the value of the English goods by demonstrating their abundance. Thus, Smith complained that we had not four bushels, for that we expected to have twenty hogsheads. For his part, Newport was much more concerned with diplomacy than his shrewdness as a trader. He needed the Indians' assistance in his true purpose, finding gold. The gold fever that swept through the settlement infuriated Smith, who thought the colonists should be rebuilding Jamestown or other productive work. Instead, there was no talk, no hope, no work, but dig gold, wash gold, refine gold, and load gold. Smith protested Newport's extended stay in the colony, complaining that, against his better sense, Newport had remained 14 weeks searching for gold, when he should have only stayed 14 days. When Newport finally left the colony in April of 1608, he had a load of ore, which he hoped was gold. In reality, it was pyrite, an element now commonly known as fool's gold. 
he also took along some Indian passengers. Powhatan sent the Indians back with Newport to investigate England and returned to describe the country to him. With Newport and his gold returning to England, Smith hoped to get the men back to work planting the fields and building shelters. President Radcliffe was more interested in the men building a grand mansion for him, however, and once again the important work necessary for survival was put off. Soon after Newport left, relations with the natives began to sour. Several were caught attempting to steal the colonists' tools, and when Smith interrogated them, he learned that Powhatan himself had not only known about the theft, but had approved of it. Concerned that Powhatan was turning against the settlers, Smith decided to set off on a journey of discovery to find new Indian allies, a more suitable location for settlement, a navigable route to the Orient, and of course, to discover if the country actually did hold gold. Thus, Smith recruited 14 men, and they set out on their expedition. While sailing along the coast, Smith and his men were caught in a squall, which nearly killed them, and succeeded in destroying the barge's sails. Using their shirts to repair the sails, the men soon continued on their way, eventually encountering a group of hostile natives. Smith wrote that the warriors were so strangely painted, grimed and disguised, shouting, yelling, and crying as so many spirits from hell could not have showed more terrible. Smith ordered his men to fire a volley into the water, which terrified the Indians so badly that they immediately dropped their weapons. When Smith asked them why they attacked him, the Indians explained that it was Powhatan who had ordered the attack. Emboldened by the fracturing among the English settlers, and encouraged by Ratcliffe's faction, Powhatan hoped to ambush Smith if he could. When Smith arrived back at the fort, he found the colonists ready to mutiny against Ratcliffe. Not only had the president squandered the supplies, but the men were angry that he was forcing them to build a presidential palace. The colonists convinced Smith to depose Ratcliffe and take command himself. Smith put all the men to hard work. He was widely respected for working harder than anyone, while many of the gentlemen were complaining. Gentlemen was the lowest rank of the English gentry, and several had come to Jamestown to make their fortune, but few had ever worked before. They had sore muscles and blistered hands. They routinely cursed Smith and the company. So, Smith instituted a rule that any man wasting his energy and breath, swearing, would have a can of cold water poured up his sleeve. The swearing quickly ceased. Under Smith's leadership, the colonists repaired the little church, built cabins for new arrivals, and constructed a new blockhouse at the end of the peninsula to hide in and watch for hostile warriors. To fix their fresh water problem, they dug a well in the center of the fort. Then Smith left the fort under the command of his friend Matthew Scrivener and set off once again to explore the country. As Smith and his men explored, they met several different tribes. Some of these native peoples were extremely hostile, while others worshipped Smith as a god. Unfortunately, Smith never did find a navigable route to the Orient, as none exists, nor did he find any gold. However, when he returned to Jamestown on September 7th, he had a barge full of corn, some new allies, and more detailed information about the surrounding lands and people. Newport returned the following month, 
and to everyone's surprise, the colony's first females were aboard. Margaret Forrest accompanied her husband Thomas, and with her came her 14-year-old maidservant, Anne Burroughs. By December, Anne had married a carpenter named John Layden. The two would soon have a little girl, the colony's first child, whom they named Virginia. Not only did Newport have two women aboard, but he also arrived with instructions not to return to England until he found either gold, a passage to the Pacific, or survivors of the lost colony of Roanoke. It seems the company needed a public relations coup and knew that the discovery of either of those three things would certainly provide it. Smith was annoyed by these instructions. He was less concerned with making headlines in London as he was surviving. Or at least, he was not interested in Newport making headlines. He certainly was not one to shrink from gaining glory for himself, as was evidenced by his own recent expeditions. Outwardly, however, he argued the men should busy themselves building up food supplies for the winter and producing useful commodities to send back to England. Both suggestions made practical sense for the survival of the colony, but the council decided to back Newport. To make matters worse, in Smith's opinion, Newport was intent on holding a coronation ceremony for Powhatan. While Smith believed it would be a terrible idea because it would make the Indian king overvalue himself, he agreed to inform Powhatan himself. Smith went to see Powhatan. The Indian king was away, but would be sent for. In the meantime, the Indians sought to entertain Smith. As he sat by the fire, Smith suddenly heard such horrifying shrieking coming from the woods that he immediately took up arms. To his great relief, there was no war party coming to kill them, but instead, 30 young women emerged from the trees painted in different colors of red, white, and black, carrying swords, clubs, and other weapons, and wearing nothing but some green leaves over their most private areas. The leader of the women had a pair of deer antlers upon her head, an otter skin around her waist, and a quiver of arrows slung across her back. Shrieking hellish cries, the women formed a ring around the fire and began singing and dancing. For nearly an hour, they sang and danced around the fire until they retired to their lodging, dragging Smith with them. Inside, they pressed themselves against him, crying, Love you, not me! Then suddenly, the salutation ended, and the feast was set. Smith turned to see beans, peas, fish, and other meats, and he ate while the women danced around him. After he had eaten, Smith was taken to his lodging, and Powhatan arrived the next day. As Smith feared, Powhatan's ego was overinflated, and he refused to accompany Smith back to the fort to receive what Newport had brought back from their king in England. Instead, Powhatan insisted that he himself was a king, and since it was his country, Newport should bring the gifts to him. Thus, Newport and Smith traveled to Powhatan's village to present Powhatan with his crown. While King James and the London Company had intended the coronation to signify Powhatan as a vassal to King James and to bestow on him a lordship, the chief certainly did not perceive it that way. Instead, as Smith had rightly feared, the coronation simply caused Powhatan to overvalue himself. Newport realized this immediately after the ceremony, when the Indian king, whom the English hoped would become more agreeable with a crown, 
refused to send any of his men to guide the colonists in their search for gold. In fact, Powhatan was making plans to rid his country of the English. Meanwhile, Newport moved forward with his plans to explore the interior of Virginia, undaunted by Powhatan's refusal to assist him. Unfortunately, the expedition was futile, as no gold was ever found, and after a 50-mile march into the interior, the men returned, exhausted and dispirited. Once back in the colony, Smith put the men to work producing pitch, tar, glass, soap ash, clapboard, and wainscot, while he set off once again to trade for much-needed supplies. The first village Smith came to belonged to the tribe who had captured him and killed Emery and Robinson the year before. When the tribe refused to trade, a frustrated Smith landed his men and declared that they had not come to trade, but rather avenged the deaths of their fellow Englishmen. The threat worked, and the Indians relented and loaded the barge with corn. Smith did not steal the food, however, but gave English goods in exchange, and according to him, parted company as good friends. Still, several of Smith's men expressed concern with the aggressive methods he was now employing with the natives. Unfortunately for the English relations with the local tribes, Smith's desperation for food caused him to grow more and more aggressive. In December, he set out again to trade for food, but was told by the first villagers he met that Powhatan had ordered them not to trade with the white men. Desperate for food, Smith reminded them that he could take the corn by force if he desired, and the threat convinced them to trade. Another village was ruled by a kind king who traded with the colonists for provisions. Smith was also warned by these friendly Indians not to trust Powhatan, nor go into his presence unarmed, as the Indian king wanted to slit Smith's throat. Smith thanked the Indian for his counsel, and left a young member of his crew to act as a servant to the chief and learn the tribe's language. The weather soon turned bitterly cold, accompanied by extreme wind, snow, and icy rain, and Smith and his men sought shelter with the Kekatan tribe. They stayed there a week, spending Christmas among the tribe and eating their fill of oysters, fish, birds, and bread. Smith claimed that nowhere in England could one find a more pleasant fire than the Kekatan smokehouses. After leaving the Kekatan, Smith did not find any more houses, and he and his men were forced to sleep huddled around a fire under a tree. Fortunately, they were able to shoot some birds to eat, but the frosty winds forced them to move on to try to find a more hospitable village. Smith then sailed up the river to find Powhatan. The ice was so thick that the barge had to stop, and Smith and his men were forced to climb through the freezing water to reach the shore. Once in the village, Powhatan did not seem pleased to see Smith and claimed to have no corn to trade. However, he then informed Smith that he would spare 40 bushels in exchange for 40 English swords, explaining that he no longer wanted to trade for anything but weapons. Smith was obstinate in his refusal to trade swords or guns, declaring he had none to spare. Smith acted offended by Powhatan because they had once been friends. Powhatan replied that he did not believe the English were there to trade, but rather to invade his country. He also had no need to trade, as he had convinced several Germans living at the colony to switch sides and steal goods for him. Both Smith and Powhatan posed as the wrong party, while each declaring their undying devotion to the other. In Smith's mind, however, he was formulating a plan to kidnap the Indian king, while Powhatan 
had already hatched a scheme to murder Smith. Smith and his men could not leave until the tide turned, and so they remained in the village being entertained, watching the Indians play sports. As he watched the games, Pocahontas approached him, and with tears streaming down her cheeks, warned her handsome Englishman of her father's murder plot. Thus, as soon as the tide turned, Smith and his men fled the village. Realizing that he had not yet accumulated enough food for the colony to survive the winter, Smith sailed to the village of Powhatan's brother, Openchankana. The chief agreed to trade with Smith the next day, but when Smith and his men entered the house, they were surrounded by hundreds of armed warriors. Fearing for his life, Smith snatched the chief by his hair braid and aimed his pistol at the man's chest. He forced the warriors to drop their weapons and then, hoping to still be their friend, since he needed them, offered to not be their enemy if they remained on friendly terms. Otherwise, he threatened he would hunt them all down. As he left the village, Smith knew that the peace with the natives was all but lost. To make matters worse, when he returned to Jamestown, he discovered that Scrivener, Goswald, Captain Waldo, and eight other men had drowned crossing the icy river to Hog Island. Smith also received word that one of the Germans, who had betrayed them to side with Powhatan, had been spotted near the fort. When Smith went out to find the traitor, he was attacked by an Indian chief named Wawinchapunk, who hoped to impress Powhatan by killing Smith. The two men fought hand to hand until they fell into the river. The chief attempted to drown Smith, but two colonists came to his rescue. Smith was furious with the assassination attempt and took a group of armed men to the chief's village where they retaliated by killing several warriors and burning the houses to the ground. Realizing that the English had superior firepower, Wawinchapunk offered to make peace with them. He also realized that without the natives, the English would likely starve. Thus, he told Smith that he would supply corn to the settlement, but if Smith sought more revenge or broke the peace, his village would simply abandon the country, leaving the English to starve to death. Smith agreed to the terms. Meanwhile, most of the corn Smith had already collected had either rotted or was eaten by rats. To survive, Smith divided up the colony, sending some to the coast to live on oysters. He sent 20 more to Point Comfort to fish. Another 20 went with Francis West to live off the land, and the rest remained at Jamestown with Smith. While the colonists in Jamestown struggled to survive, back in England, the London Company was devising a new strategy for the colony. Realizing that they needed a permanent governor living in Virginia, the company chose Sir Thomas West, the Lord Delaware, and brother of colonist Francis West. To establish a permanent colony, Lord Delaware would bring soldiers, blacksmiths, shipwrights, and badly needed artisans to Virginia. The capital would be moved from Jamestown to a more suitable location, something John Smith already hoped to accomplish because Jamestown was seen as unwholesome and much too vulnerable to attack. The English plan was to Christianize the natives and with them build an Anglican empire to rival the Catholics. However, that plan was severely tested by information that probably came from Powhatan's brother-in-law, whom Powhatan had sent to England along with Newport. The information the company received was about the fate of the lost colonists of Roanoke. 
after John White failed to return and resupply the colony, the English colonists at Roanoke had abandoned the island with a few going to Croatan to live with the friendly Indians there. Most of them did not stay on Croatan, however, and left to either establish a colony on the Chesapeake Bay or further inland. When the Jamestown settlers arrived, Powhatan's priests warned the Indian king that they would undermine his control of the country. At the priest's urging, Powhatan sent his warriors to slaughter the lost colonists and the Indians who had taken them in before they would have a chance to link up with the new arrivals at Jamestown. One of the ways Powhatan had maintained control over the surrounding tribes was by his exclusive access to European traders visiting the area. Thus, he made himself the sole source of European goods for the Indians. He realized that if the English established a permanent settlement in his land, he would lose that power, as the other tribes could go directly to the source to trade for goods. Thus, the English had to be disposed of, so that Powhatan could maintain his kingdom. Despite the massacre being brought to light, the English believed the Indians could still be brought to Christ. In fact, by order of King James himself, Powhatan was not to be blamed for the massacre of the colonists. Instead, the blame would fall squarely on the shoulders of the Indian priests. Thus, despite all of the violence visited upon their colonists by Powhatan and his tribe, the king forbade the killing of Powhatan or any of his people except the priests. It was believed that once the priests were captured or killed, the rest of the people could be Christianized. Then Powhatan and each of the other chiefs of Virginia would be titled as lords ruling over their own province, but with each becoming a tributary of King James and owing loyalty to the crown. Meanwhile, back in Virginia, the colony was once again nearing collapse following a long and brutal winter. Newport had not returned to the colony that spring with fresh supplies as expected, and to make matters worse, many of the men still refused to sow crops. Thus, John Smith was likely overjoyed when a ship was spotted sailing toward the island. Captain Samuel Argall had come to fish, not resupply the colony. But when he realized how badly provisioned Jamestown was, he gave them some of his supplies. He also presented them with the good news that a fleet of ships was bringing a great supply to Jamestown in preparation for the arrival of Lord Delaware. In June of 1609, Sir Thomas Gates set out with a fleet under the command of Sir George Somers, who had been appointed Admiral of Virginia. Gates was named Deputy Governor of the Colony and would act as Governor until Lord Delaware arrived. Gates and Somers were both aboard the Sea Venture, the ship commanded by Captain Newport. Also aboard the Sea Venture was an enterprising young man named John Rolfe, who hoped to make his fortune in Virginia growing tobacco. Unfortunately, the fleet was caught in a hurricane and the ships were separated from one another. The Sea Venture began to leak heavily when her seams came loose, crashing through waves as large as hills, and the men tossed a cannon, luggage, and supplies overboard to keep her afloat. While Admiral Somers lashed himself to the deck to keep watch through the storm, Gates split the men into three gangs to work in shifts, pumping the water out around the clock. For three days, the Sea Venture rocked in the hurricane, unable to navigate as neither the stars nor the sun were visible. 
Eventually, the ship had taken on nine feet of water and the crew resigned themselves to die at sea. But above deck, Admiral Summers was shouting for joy. Still lashed down to keep a lookout, Summers spotted land and cried out to the crew below. The storm had driven the Sea Venture hundreds of miles off course to the uninhabited islands of Bermuda. Not only were these islands uninhabited, but they were feared by mariners the world over who knew them as the Devil's Islands. For the crew of the Sea Venture, however, the Devil's Islands had become their saving deliverance. In fact, they soon discovered that the islands were a tropical paradise. Food was abundant with berries, palmetto trees, birds, fish, sea turtles, and even wild hogs which had been introduced by the Spanish years earlier. The Devil's Islands turned out to be the richest, healthfulest, and most pleasing land as ever man set foot upon. Among the castaways were numerous ship's carpenters, and they immediately got to work building a new ship out of the remains of the sea venture. They also built another small ship from scratch using timber from the nearby woods. Their adventures on the island would serve as the inspiration for William Shakespeare's popular play, The Tempest. While the crew of the sea venture worked to get off the island, the remainder of the fleet limped up the James River toward Jamestown. Some of the ships barely afloat. Ratcliffe and Archer were among the men in the fleet and had spent much of the voyage stirring up their fellow travelers against Smith. As soon as Ratcliffe came ashore, he attempted to usurp Smith's authority. The following he and Archer had built up during the voyage faced off against Smith, who was backed by the original settlers. Ratcliffe demanded that Smith resign in his favor, but Smith refused. Ratcliffe began shouting insults at Smith and attempted to incite a rebellion among the newcomers. To keep the peace, Smith had him arrested. The newly arrived colonists quadrupled the size of the colony to nearly 500. Smith decided to split them up so that they would have a better chance to survive. He sent 120 men with Francis West to the falls and 60 downriver to Nansmund with John Martin. The rest stayed at Jamestown with Smith. It is likely that Smith was splitting up the leaders who were trying to depose him. In fact, a conspiracy of Ratcliffe, Archer, West, and Martin was already making plans. Martin sent two messengers to the king of the Nansman tribe to broker a deal for the sale of an island where the English hoped to erect a settlement. The Indians answered the query by sacrificing the two messengers and scraping their brains out of their skulls with mussel shells. Infuriated, Martin and his men attacked the island, taking it by force, burning the houses, and plundering the temple. In their raging vengeance, they even desecrated the corpses of the dead kings and stole the pearls and beads from their graves. Meanwhile, at the falls, Francis West and his men were not having much more luck. The Powhatan warriors attacked and killed as many Englishmen as they could. To make matters worse, Smith had visited the settlement and argued with West over the best location of the fort. Lord Delaware's brother refused to relent, however, and Smith left the men to their fate. While returning on the boat to Jamestown, Smith fell asleep, and a lit match fell into his lap, igniting his gunpowder bag. The explosion and burns severely injured Smith, and though it was proclaimed an accident, it was clear that Ratcliffe, Martin, and Archer had arranged the assassination attempt. Smith survived, 
but was deposed and kept under guard until he was sent back to England with the returning supply ships. Smith never returned to Virginia, but he was not done yet with the New World. He would still have adventures in America, but the next time it would be farther north. When the ships arrived in England, they informed the company that the sea venture carrying Newport, Gates, and Somers had been lost. Lord Delaware immediately departed for Virginia in April of 1610, with 150 skilled laborers that the colony so desperately needed. Watching Smith and the supply ships depart Jamestown emboldened Powhatan and the local tribes, who saw an opportunity to rid themselves of the English forever. 300 colonists were crammed inside the fort and the food was rapidly running out. Realizing their desperation, Powhatan lured Ratcliffe and 30 men into an ambush by promising to trade for corn. Most of the men were killed. Ratcliffe was captured and tortured to death by the village women in ways much too horrifying to describe here. Francis West took a ship christened the Swallow to trade with a friendly tribe but his men mutinied and forced him to set sail for England. Losing the Swallow deprived the colonists of their best ship. The Nansmond and Powhatan tribes worked together to bottle the colonists up in the fort, slaughtering their cattle and watching while the Englishmen starved to death. In their desperation, the colonists ate horses, dogs, snakes, cats, rats, and mice. Eventually, the starving settlers turned to cannibalism eating the bodies of their dead. By the spring of 1610, 160 men, women, and children had died. But with spring also came relief from the siege, as the Indians had to return to their villages to plant their crops. Then, in May of 1610, the survivors noticed two small ships sailing up the river. Newport, Gates, Somers, and their crews, including John Rolfe, had escaped Bermuda and finally made it to the colony aboard two smaller ships. They arrived to find death and despair with the remaining colonists begging them to take them back to England. Realizing that they did not have enough food to feed themselves and the colonists, Newport and Gates agreed. In June, the two ships sailed from Jamestown, intending to abandon the colony for good. As they sailed down the James River, they saw a longboat paddling toward them. Lord Delaware had arrived just in time with fresh supplies including cattle, skilled artisans, and even families, ready to construct a proper colony for defense from the Indians and to keep order amongst the colonists. Delaware had brought along a small military force, which he placed under the command of a young army veteran named Thomas Dale. Dale was authorized by Lord Delaware to use military-style rule to get the colony back in shape. After all, it had deteriorated badly. Dale immediately put the colonists to work, repairing the church, digging proper sanitation, building houses, and cleaning the entire area. He also established new rules for sanitation to prevent disease. Despite that, Lord Delaware grew sick and decided to return to England to recover. Dale took full control of the colony. He noticed that only about a fifth of the men were actually working to provide for the rest of the colony. He soon recognized the root of the problem. Since Jamestown had been founded, they had used a compulsory communal system. 
everything was placed into a single common stockpile to be used by everyone. Dale changed the rules so that each man would be given three acres of his own upon which he could build his own house and grow his own crops and provide for his family. The families could keep what they grew except for a small amount taxed from each farm to be placed into a common pile. The colonists took pride in their houses and gardens. They were responsible for themselves and their own provisions. The colony turned around almost immediately and Jamestown never starved again. Thus, the very first Americans realized that what we today know as socialism had been the cause of all of their ills. While they rebuilt the colony, the colonists continued to war with the local tribes. Several hundred warriors attacked Jamestown, killing six soldiers who were standing guard at the blockhouse. Realizing that the colonists could not remain hemmed in at Jamestown if they expected to survive, Dale sought to control the James and York rivers. He would establish a new capital 50 miles from Jamestown and build so many new forts and towns that Powhatan would have to make peace with the English or else abandon the land. The first new town they built they named Henrico, in honor of Henry, Prince of Wales. By the end of the year, they had erected a church, three streets of houses, storehouses, and watchtowers at every corner. An angry Powhatan watched the construction with frustration, realizing that he did not possess the military strength to stand up to the English armor and guns. From the newly established fort at Henrico, Dale sent out parties to take revenge on the tribes who had assaulted them in the past. The English destroyed villages and captured entire stores of corn. As the years passed, the settlers took over more and more land, eventually occupying both sides of the James River, from the mouth of the Appomattox to Henrico. It was at Henrico that John Rolfe was experimenting with planting tobacco. The tobacco grown by the local tribes was too bitter for English tastes, and Rolfe was trying to develop a better leaf, with seeds from the West Indies. He soon found that the West Indian tobacco flourished in Virginia. The colony also flourished, despite the continued hostility from the natives. While Powhatan and the other tribes could not launch a successful frontal assault, they did continue to send out raiding parties against the English, capturing weapons and even settlers. Then, in the spring of 1613, Captain Samuel Argall set out on a trading expedition with the friendly coastal tribes. While at one of their villages, Argall learned that Powhatan's favorite daughter, Pocahontas, was on a diplomatic mission to the local tribe. The English sailor hatched a devious scheme to force Powhatan to return the captured settlers and their weapons. Before we continue... I wanted to pause and take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast. I realize that you have a lot of options to occupy your time, and I'm truly grateful and humbled that you chose Home of the Brave. As you can imagine, it has taken a lot of time, energy, and money to create a podcast such as this, and I really need your support. Please share it with your friends, subscribe, and write a review. Also, I'd like to ask you to purchase the ebook that this podcast is based on. You can find Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic by Christopher Vale, that's V A L E, at Amazon.com or on my website at ChristopherVale.com.
www.ethanwilliams.net. I have two more books that I hope to write and record as podcasts to tell the story of America up through the end of the Cold War. But I won't be able to do so without your generous support. Thank you again. And now, back to Home of the Brave. Argall whispered his plan to his friend and adopted brother, a local Indian chief named Iopasus. Argall told the chief his plan to capture the Indian princess, but swore she would not be harmed. He threatened that if Iopasus did not help him, they would no longer be brothers, and the peace between them would be broken. However, if Iopasus did help his English brother, Argall promised to help him fight Powhatan. The chief agreed. So Iopasus and his wife lured Pocahontas onto Argall's ship, where they were rewarded with some copper and other trifles, while Pocahontas was taken prisoner. Argall then sent a message to Powhatan, informing him that his precious daughter had been captured and would not be released until Powhatan released the English prisoners and returned the weapons and tools he had stolen. Powhatan refused to even reply to Argall's demands for nearly three months. He did not want to give up his prisoners, whom he was using as slave labor. Nor did he want to give up the tools and weapons, which delighted him to view and look upon. Eventually, however, he was forced to release several men and some unserviceable muskets, but claimed the rest of the tools and guns were lost or broken. He offered to pay for the lost and broken tools and guns with corn, but Dale refused, not believing the Indian king was telling the truth. While at Henrico, Pocahontas was treated very well and less like a prisoner than a member of the colony. She moved freely about the settlement and made friends with the colonists. She soon caught the eye of John Rolfe, who was assisting in her English instruction and lessons in the Christian religion. Rolfe fell deeply in love with the exotic beauty. Pocahontas was eventually baptized and took the Christian name Rebecca, which means mother of two peoples. She and Rolfe were married with Dale's blessing. Dale was no fool and realized that the marriage of Pocahontas to an Englishman could seal the peace with Powhatan that he so desperately wanted. It also gave him not only an Indian convert to Christianity, something all of England would celebrate, but the daughter of the Indian king, no less. Even Powhatan agreed to the union and sent Pocahontas' uncle and two of her brothers to witness the wedding in the Jamestown church on April 5, 1614. The marriage was greeted with great joy on both sides of the Atlantic, as the English hoped this would allow the two peoples to finally live in peace and harmony together. In fact, a peace was soon struck between not only Dale and Powhatan, but with the other local tribes as well. Rolf and Pocahontas soon had a son whom they named Thomas, and in April of 1616, all three accompanied Dale and Francis West to England. Pocahontas took her sister and ten young Indian women to act as attendants. Her sister's husband went with them. He had been instructed by Powhatan to learn as much about England as he could. Pocahontas and her entourage were instant celebrities among London's elite. With the Lord and Lady Delaware making the proper introductions, John Rolfe and the Lady Rebecca, as she was called, found themselves attending the theater, elegant balls, and other wonderful spectacles. Taverns and inns all over London were renamed La Belle Sauvage in her honor. Delaware even introduced them to the king and queen, and Pocahontas soon became a regular visitor to Queen Anne. 
It certainly did not hurt that John Smith had sent a book to the Queen detailing how Pocahontas had rescued him and saved the colony from starvation. The Rolfe House in Branford became a hot spot with lords, ladies, and bishops constantly visiting, all wanting to meet this beautiful, dark-skinned princess from an alien land. One day there was a knock on the door, and when it opened, Pocahontas leapt back, her hands covering her mouth. John Smith stood there, smiling broadly at her. With a flourishing bow, he greeted Lady Rebecca. Tears streamed down her cheeks, and she could not speak for a long time. When she finally did, she said, They told me you were dead. The two visited for a long while as old friends, with Pocahontas very glad to see Smith alive and well. While they were in England, Lord Delaware became ill, and a new governor was appointed. The company asked John Rolfe to act as his secretary, and Rolfe immediately began making plans to return to Virginia. Before they could leave, however, Pocahontas became very sick and sadly died before she could return home. She is buried in a churchyard in England. Rolfe left their son Thomas in the care of some relatives and returned to Virginia with the new governor. He and others began establishing tobacco as Virginia's first really profitable commodity. Rolfe eventually remarried and built a prosperous tobacco farm along the James River. His son Thomas came to America in 1640 and married a local girl named Jane. With tobacco making so much money, more cheap labor was needed. Thus, many indentured servants were brought over from Europe. Badly treated, these men were worked endlessly in the fields. Then, in 1619, the first African slaves were sold to the colonists, like animals, by a Portuguese trader who had purchased them in the West Indies. Still, African slavery did not catch on immediately. At this point, it was primarily white indentured servants working the fields. But eventually, many decades down the road, African slaves would become the main source of farm labor in Virginia. In July of that same year, the Virginia Assembly, known as the House of Burgesses, elected its first members. They met in the wooden church at Jamestown. By 1700, the seat of government of the rapidly growing colony was moved from Jamestown to Williamsburg, initially meeting in the newly built College of William and Mary. By the time George Washington was born in 1732, the colony exceeded 100,000 people, and 30 years after that would have a population of over 300,000 people. Virginia was the first English colony in what would eventually become the United States of America. The second was further north, in a location mapped out by none other than Captain John Smith himself. The land was originally known as Northern Virginia, but Captain Smith renamed it New England. Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com.